On November 13th, 2014, and then again on November 3rd, 2017, I met two people who changed my life forever. You see, these are the days that my daughter and my son were born. So Emily Marcella on November 13th and Logan Samuel on November 3rd. I met them and I'm marked by them for the rest of my life. You see, when, a, when your kid is born, it's, you cease to just be with your wife. It's now a family and you, everything changes. And it's not just my affections. Yes, I love my child naturally. It just, it's something that happens immediately but also the way I think, the way I process. Everything is changed by meeting these two people. I think about things like college. I think about things like how am I going to provide. I think about things like how am I going to parent these children. I have to reframe the entire way I approach life. See, these two little human beings have marked me. Our text today shows us something similar, that meeting and knowing Jesus marks us in a way that leaves an imprint on us now and for eternity. These marks are discernible. They can be seen. So let's read our text together. This is 1 John 4, 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. If I have one, what I'm going to argue My main point, what I want us to walk away from today is simply this. Meeting Jesus leaves distinguishing marks on the Christian. Meeting Jesus leaves distinguishing marks on the Christian. And there's three marks that we'll see in the text today. First, Christians are marked by the Holy Spirit. Christians are marked by the Holy Spirit. Second, Christians are marked by our confession of Christ. And third, Christians are marked by love. And it's interesting to note that these last two are caused by the first. You see, it is the Spirit 
It is by the Spirit that we come to acknowledge the incarnation of the Son, and by that same Spirit that we are enabled to love. 1 John is a letter to a group of churches who are reeling from a group of false teachers, people who are among them who left, secessionists who claim things like Jesus isn't Lord and you don't need to be forgiven of your sins. They went out from them. And they fail. So you can look at these three marks as a threefold test. And these people who left fail those tests. They deny Christ. They don't love. And therefore, there's no evidence of the Spirit abiding in them. Conversely, Christians ought to be marked by these three things. The Holy Spirit, our confession of Christ, and love. So let's start by how we're marked by the Holy Spirit. First John, we see this in verses 13 through 14 in chapter 4. We'll start with verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. Our position in Christ as Christians, our new nature, the new creation, the new heart that replaces the old heart, this happens by the work of the Holy Spirit in believers. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates our hearts and our minds. In the old days, when a king or a lord wrote a letter, they would seal that letter with hot wax and then put a stamp on it, a symbol distinctly uh, attached to the name of that king or lord. Likewise, the Holy Spirit stamps God's image on believers. It stamps the image of Christ on his people. So you might ask, how do we know if someone has the Spirit? How do we know if someone has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and become a Christian? Or in other words, what does this impression look like? Galatians 5, 19-24 gives us a picture it says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we have a contrast here. We see the works of the flesh are things like idolatry and sorcery, wickedness, evil. This is the works of of the flesh. Somebody who has the Holy Spirit is not marked by these things. They are not marked by wickedness. That doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't stumble. But the pattern of our life over the course of our life should look more and more like Christ as we grow in Christ's likeness through the Holy Spirit. Conversely, the fruits of the Spirit are things like love and joy and peace and patience. So what does the stamp of the Spirit look like on a Christian? These things, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Notice, too, that the, it's works of the flesh 
and fruits of the Spirit. You see, our flesh does these things, but the Spirit produces in us fruit. That's not us. We can't do that on our own. We can't produce these, these fruits. We need the Holy Spirit to work that through us. Works versus fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is born of the Spirit's work in us. And it marks us. Conversely, those who don't have the Holy Spirit are marked by iniquity, by wicked actions. So that's what it looks like. This is what the image of Christ looks like in his believers. We will know them by their fruits. But the Holy Spirit does more than just produce fruit in us. It unites us with Christ. This text gets at that union when he says, we abide in him and he abides in us. And that sounds simple, but that's a little wild, right? Like we're going to, God's going to come and abide in us. He's going to live in us and we're going to live in God. What, what does that look like? Theologians will talk about the union we have with Christ. But what is it? This is, honestly, one of the great mysteries of the faith. We won't truly know what it means to be united with Christ until we're on the other side of eternity. But language about this union is all over the Scriptures. Throughout the Old Testament, you see, in places like the Psalms, the the Bible talk about our portion is the Lord. In Ephesians 5, we see a reference to marriage being a picture of, of the relationship between Christ and the church, a picture of the union between Christ and Christians. Romans 8.17 calls Christians co-heirs with Christ. Ergo, we are so united with him that everything he gets, we're going to inherit as well as co-heirs with him through our union. Revelation tells us that Christians will reign with Christ. So we're so united to him that we're going to be part of his governing at the end of all things, whatever that means. John 15 gives us the metaphor of Christ as the vine and we are the branches. So we are intimately connected to Christ. We grow out from him in ways, this is just a a picture, an imaging of what it means to be united to Christ. But what can we gather from these metaphors, from these images? What can we discern about our union with Christ? Yes, it's mysterious, but Scripture still gives us an idea of what it means. First, our union is spiritual. So we abide in him and he abides in us, but not in our existence, meaning we don't become gods, as other religions, uh, false religions would say, like Mormonism. We don't become gods. And it's not a physical union. We're not united to him in our bodies. And it's not like the union between my mind and my heart. It's not like we become part of a whole. And it's not just moral. It's not just that we're on the same side or the same team or have the same purpose. Rather, our union with Christ is spiritual. And through that union, we will inherit with Christ all of his benefits. Second, our union with Christ is eternal. So this this union is so tied to us, so aligned with us and us with Christ that we are bound to him 
eternally. Before the foundation of the world, Christ predestines us to be a part of his people. And then going forward, we see in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, that it's going to go on forever. That verse says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, union with Christ, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So before everything, that union was established, and in the coming ages forever, that union will be displayed for all eternity, and we will share in his heavenly reward forever. So our union with Christ is spiritual. Our union with Christ is eternal. And our union with Christ is life-giving. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our union with Christ gives us life because we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It is only through faith in him, repentance from our sins, and union with him that we can be made alive, that we can breathe again, spiritually speaking. Famously, uh, there's, a, there's an old anecdote of a, 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 a professor, a seminary professor, who has his class go preach to a graveyard because we preach to dead, dead men and women who need to be raised by Christ. It's only the Spirit that does this. And it's our union with Christ that takes those people in the grave and raises them again. This is what union with Christ gives us, life, and life eternally. So the Christian's union with Christ is spiritual, eternal, and life-giving. There's a ton more I could say about the Christian's union with Christ. Theologians have tried to pierce these depths for hundreds of years. We could spend all day and not come anywhere close to covering it all. But I'll let John Owen sum it up, and he said this, Our union with Christ is the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. They are all communicated unto us by the virtue of our union with Christ. Hence is our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, our perseverance, our resurrection, our glory. So all those fancy theological words that I just said, what that's referencing is Christ and all his benefits. So the, the life of the Christian, everything about it, being made in the image of Christ, becoming more holy, loving one another, giving, getting grace for our sin, all of those things are by virtue of our union through Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our future with Christ in heaven is secure because of our union with Christ. All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. We abide in him and he abides in us because he has given us of his spirit, as the text says. 
Moving on in verse 14, we see that John reminds his hearers, his readers, that not only does the Holy Spirit testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ and our union with him, it's not just the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that's testifying to this reality, the apostles do too. And by extension, the Word of God, the very Bible you hold in your hands. So it's a twofold witnessing of Christ's ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. It's both the Spirit testifying to who Christ is in our hearts and the words of the apostles that are written down for us in Scripture. Verse 14 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This reminds us, reminds us of the first chapter in 1 John, where John says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, what we have heard with our ears. All this pointing to the reality that Jesus Christ was a real person, a historical figure that John saw, saw him be crucified on a cross, but that death could not hold him, and he rose again. So the Holy Spirit testifies to the reality of who Jesus is by convicting us in our hearts. The eyewitness accounts of the apostles in the early church do as well, recorded for us in the scriptures. And so John's telling his people, this is why Jesus came. I saw it, and he came to be the Savior of the world. He confesses the reality of who Jesus is, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who's come to rescue us for our, from our sins. This same confession marks Christians throughout time. And this is our second point. Christians are marked by confessing Christ. So Christians are marked by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, Christians are marked by confessing Christ. We see this in uh, verses 15 through 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. When someone confesses Christ, they join the witness of the Holy Spirit and of the apostles given to us in Scripture in saying who Jesus is, saying he's the Messiah sent to rescue someone. So a way we can look at these three marks of, of, uh, of how Jesus marks the Christian, marked by the Spirit, marked by confession, we can also look at them as tests, in the sense of how do we know someone is a Christian? Well, they're marked by the Spirit. They have the fruit of the Spirit. And secondly, he or she confesses Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world. And in this, in this text, in this verse, it says know and believe. It's, it's an emphatic believing. It's a, it's a, re, a repetition it's almost like saying to know Christ is to believe. If we truly know who Jesus is as revealed by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, we'll believe. I think of the, the words from the song talking about who Jesus is when it says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. So we have come to know and believe that that's true. We've come and to know, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We confess who Jesus is. We're marked by it. But this isn't always easy. And it's not simply intellectual. 
It's not simply giving assent to a set of facts that happened over 2,000 years ago. Belief is, is more than just reciting facts. There can be a cost to it. Confessing Christ can cost a lot. In the 1550s, there was a 17-year-old girl who sat in prison waiting for her execution. Her name was Lady Jane Grey. She's also known as the Nine Days Queen. Why? Because she was named heir to the throne in England by Edward VI. She was so named, she was, she was named heir because Edward knew that she would protect the Reformation in England. Why was he confident that she would? Because in addition to being a nine-day queen, Lady Jane was one of the most educated women of her time. She read the scriptures in Greek and Hebrew, and she was utterly convinced of the truth of the Reformation, that we were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Unfortunately for her, the political powers that be decided that they didn't want that. So her cousin, Mary, who you may know is Bloody Mary, had her arrested and thrown into jail. These are cousins. But she doesn't leave her alone. Mary sends a, a Catholic interrogator to try and convince her to come back to the true faith in Roman Catholicism. And they meet again and again. And finally, the interrogator says to her, I am sure we two shall never meet again, implying that Lady Jane was damned to hell for all eternity. But Jane turns the warning back on him and says, truth, truth it is that we shall never meet again unless God turns your heart. You see, this woman is nobility. She could have turned from her faith. She could have said her confession of Christ was not true. She could have gotten out of this jam and probably found some kind of retired life that would have been as comfortable as it could have been for her in that time but it's her confession of Christ that she clung to. And it's her confession of Christ that kept her faithful as she walked towards her execution. And she echoed the prayer of Jesus on the cross. Her last words were, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then she died. She's killed. This is what confessing Christ can mean. But it's a mark of knowing Christ. It isn't always easy, but it's always worth it. Matthew 10, 32 through 33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So in our context, confessing Christ, the, the, it likely faces much more subtle pressures. And largely, this is social pressures. Things I hear is, well, you can believe whatever you want, just don't tell me what I need to believe. You can think whatever you want is true, but don't, don't tell me that you are claiming ultimate truth. You can believe whatever you want, but don't tell me how to live my life in terms of who I marry, who I love, my sexuality. You can believe whatever you want, but don't tell me that, yeah, my hope shouldn't be in politics. You can believe whatever you want, but don't invalidate how I want to live, right? So we feel a subtle social pressure to keep our confession of Christ quiet. 
And this is not new. I think sometimes in my own thinking, as I'm at work and I've had faced situations where I'm like, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to confess Christ in this moment because I know that this person doesn't believe. I don't want to offend. I don't want to be disliked. The, the apostles never had to deal with this, but that's not true. This is old. Peter himself feared the circumcision party in his own day. Circumcision party is a group of Jewish believers who contended that you had to first become a Jew before you become a Christian. And their influence was so pernicious on Peter, the apostle, that he would not eat with Gentiles. You see social subtle pressure. But Paul opposes him to his face and says, what you're doing is out of step with the gospel. It might seem subtle, it might seem small, but you're denying the confession of Christ that you have made. These are the types of pressures we feel. And we cannot and should not deny the reality of what the gospel does for us. We have to ignore these subtle social pressures and proclaim the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, come what may. So the Christian is marked by the Spirit, marked by their confession of Christ. And part of this confession is not just the words that we say, sharing the gospel. We ought to do that. We need to evangelize. We need to share the truth of who Jesus is with the people around us. We should be building each other up into Christ who is the head. But it also extends to our behavior. Sin, especially in front of the watching world, makes us hypocrites in our confession of Christ. Again, this doesn't mean that we should never sin. It does not mean that we're not going to stumble. Until we reach heaven with Christ, we're going to continue to sin. He's going to continue to give us grace. But at the same time, we ought to pursue righteousness because when we act in such a way in front of unbelievers that is inconsistent with our confession of Christ, we give them ammunition to believe. See? Hypocrites. They don't really believe it. Their life invalidates the things that they're saying. So we're marked by the Holy Spirit, we're marked by our confession of Christ, and related to the way we live in the world, Christians have to be marked by love. 1 John 4, 17 through 21. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother." See, love is perfected in us by our abiding in God and God abiding in us. This phrase, perfected in love, this, is the, this happens twice in these two verses. It is the third and fourth time that 1 John talks about the idea of love being completed in us, love being perfected in us. This is an important thread. The first reference comes from 1 John 2.5 where it says our love is perfected by obeying God's word. The second is from chapter 4, verse 12, which Bill preached on last week, where it says, love is made perfect in us by our love for one another. And our current text 
It says, love is made perfect on the day of judgment where the Christian stands unafraid. So how is Christ's love made perfect in us by obeying God's word, by loving one another, and by being unafraid on the last day when God judges all things? You see, judgment day is nothing to fear for the Christian. But if you think about it, that ought to be terrifying in many ways. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 describes for us the scene. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found from them. This is such a scene where cosmic power is reverberating that the language is earth and sky run. I don't know what that looks like, but I think it has to be utterly terrifying. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which, was, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, what is it that we should fear? Judgment day, this moment. But Christians can stand unafraid in that moment. Why? Why is it that we ought not tremble in that moment? Not because of anything we've done, not even because we've pursued, not, yeah, nothing we've, not because of our pursuit, not because of what we've done to be a good Christian. Rather, it's because of our union with Christ. You see, when God looks at the Christian on Judgment Day, he doesn't see what they've done, where they've come from, how they failed, how they've been sinned against, but rather he sees the righteousness of Jesus transferred to them through the cross. So we ought not be afraid because who could bring a charge against Christ? And therefore, who can bring a charge against his people? Judgment Day is not a scary day for the Christian, because we stand united with Christ by the power of his spirit. You see, we're marked by Christ's love for us. So how is the Christian marked by love? Well, first, we're marked by his love for us. You see, God's love for us isn't far off. It isn't at a distance. He comes near. He comes near in the person of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stay passive, it's active. Christ, who wanted to be close to us, wanted to be a human being so he could identify with us, who gave up the throne of heaven to step into humanity so that we may identify with him through the power of the Holy Spirit and be united to him forever. See, this is what the cross accomplishes. When Jesus lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, spills his blood for the payment of our sin, he's paying for us. But death cannot hold him. He rose again after three days. And all we need to do is turn to him in faith and flee from our sin to be united to him. And so if you're here and you say, well, that's great, Ben. That sounds lovely, but you don't know who I am or what I've done. You don't know what doubts plague me, what fears I have, what evil resides in my heart. You don't know what's been done to me. 
You don't know how I'm not smart enough. I don't understand these things. I am unworthy in a way that you could never fathom. It's not true. Do you know how I know that you're worthy, how I know you're valuable? The value of an object is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. And the God of the universe, the God of the universe was willing to pay his son's blood in order to redeem you. Therefore, you have value without measurement. Nothing can pay for you other than Jesus. You are infinitely worthy, infinitely valuable. Christ loves you that much. But that love just can't stay with us for the Christian. The love has to, we have to receive. We're not just passive recipients of Christ's love. It's got to overflow from us and into the people around us. So we're marked by love, namely Christ's love for us, but Christians ought to be marked by love in how they interact with the people around them, particularly people in the church. The text says, we love because he first loved us. And so if we don't love our brothers and sisters in the church who we can see with our eyes, who I spend time with every day, if we can't love them, how are we going to love God who we don't see? So if we say we love God, but we hate our brothers and sisters, we're lying. And we're denying the confession of Christ that I just said marks the Christian. Not loving our brothers and sisters is a denial of the declaration of our, of our declaration of our faith in Christ. So we've got to love. And what does this look like? How should the Christian love another Christian? I think Bill said last week, as he preached through a similar theme, that you might be saying to yourself, I've heard this again and again and again. I've got to love, I've got to love, I've got to love. So why does John keep saying it? Well, it's because we have to hear it. Because loving each other is hard. It's unnatural. We want to put ourselves first. That's the most natural thing in the world. That's part of who we are. It's part of our sin nature. We want to be number one. We want to call the shots. So John's reminding us, no, no, no. No, brothers and sisters, you have to love. And he doesn't just leave us there like, he points to Christ as the example of love for us. So how do we learn to love? We look at how Christ loved us. He's an example. What are some lessons we can draw from the life of Christ about what it means to love? It's self-sacrificing. Christ gives up heaven for us. It's affection. So it's not just things we do, but it actually is warm affection towards people around us. This is going to sound weird. We don't just have to love people. We actually have to like them. We have to feel genuinely affectionate towards the people around us. I've often been told, well, love is an action. And that's, that's true. Love is also a feeling. It's also genuinely enjoying the people that God has put into our life. What else does love look like? We see this all over 1 John, obeying God's Commandments, And in the same way, Christ is our example. He came to do the will of him who sent him. It's considering others worthy of more honor than ourselves. Christ puts on the form of a servant. He becomes a creature. The creator of all things becomes a creature, considering us worthy of more honor than himself. He came to serve. 
So our love for one another ought to cost us something. It ought to be mindful of others. At a minimum, we need to be spending time on these things, on each other. So much of this requires nearness. Again, Christ doesn't stand far off. He comes near. And so a really clear implication for us as we try to love one another, we actually have to be near to one another. We've got to spend time with one another. We gotta serve. How do we serve one another? We actually have to be in the same place from time to time to serve one another. How do we have affection for somebody? How do we show them that we have affection for them? We actually have to be in the same place. This is one of the reasons we try to stress hospitality so much as a value of this church, because that nearness is how we love one another. Christ welcomes us into his heavenly home through his own blood. It's hard to think of anything in our lives that we shouldn't be willing to give up to welcome others into our own homes or to spend time with them. So the Christian is marked by the Holy Spirit, marked by the confession of Christ, and marked by love. I've said that part of the reason this letter was written was to encourage and protect faithful Christians from the influence of those who had departed from the church, who departed from Christ. What is it that marked those opponents, those secessionists, those people that left? John Stott said it like this, They claim to know God and have fellowship with God to claim to know God and have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness of disobedience is to lie. To claim to possess the Father while denying the deity of the Son is to lie. To claim to love God while hating our brothers is also to lie. These are the three black lies of 1 John, moral, doctrinal, and social. We may insist that we are Christian, but habitual sin Denial of Christ and selfish hatred would expose us as liars. Only holiness, faith, and love can prove the truth of our claim to know, possess, and love God. Conversely, Christians, those who truly know Christ, who are united to him through the power of his spirit, are marked by the Holy Spirit, are marked by testifying and confessing that Jesus is Lord, and are marked by love, both Christ's love for us and our love for those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do worship you as a God who who loved us, who came near. We've said that nearness is a big part of affection, of love. And you showed your love for us by coming near. And so we thank you for sending Jesus who is gentle and lowly in spirit and willing to give up heaven in order to rescue us. We do pray that we likewise would love those around us in spirit and in truth, testifying to the goodness of who you are while remembering our standing with you is secure through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That when you see your people, you don't see their failures or their unworthiness or their sins, or their mistakes, or their heritage, but rather you see Christ in his perfect righteousness. We thank you for sending him, and as we go from this place, help us to remember who we are in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.